Six minutes it is now uh, before, oh well, 26 minutes I should rather say. Uh, 26 minutes it is uh, before 9pm. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk with me, Ayabonga Tawe. And uh, we now uh, shift uh, gear slightly and uh, take a look at uh, issues of dispossession uh, in mining affected communities in the province of Mpumalanga. And uh, we're going to be uh, honing in on uh, one particular area here in Ochis, all the way out in uh, Emalasheni. And I'm joined uh, to have this conversation by Associate Researcher at the University of the Witwatersrand, uh, Dineo Skosana, uh, whose work and uh, whose uh, PhD research uh, focuses on the dispossession of families in uh, and alongside South African mines, uh, which uh, continues to this day. And uh, as I said earlier on, in many ways she extends and widens our aperture uh, and our understanding of uh, what we mean by dispossession and uh, I guess uh, more importantly uh, what impact that has on many communities that uh, have lived uh, for many, many a decade alongside mining communities uh, here in South Africa and uh, she joins me now uh, in studio. Dinewa, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And how are you? I'm very well, thanks. You mind just coming a bit closer? to the microphone awesome awesome stuff do now just briefly uh, before we get into i guess some of the findings here and uh, the process uh, through which uh, you arrived at some of those findings talk to me about what spurred your interest in this particular area enough for you to say i'm going to undertake my you know uh, a phd research work in this uh, particular area well first of all i should say thank you for inviting me um what i was interested in was or perhaps rather I should say that when I undertook uh, research for Center for Law and Society, which is based at the University of Cape Town, I monitored the land restitution bill in seven mm. provinces. Okay. And what was interesting is that in all the public hearings, I had old people mm. cry about their graves. Hmm. And I started being fascinated by the question, why? Why will elderly people cry over an ancestral grave? Sure. I think for us, we take it for granted that we're black and therefore we understand why and that perhaps a grave is sacred and we leave it there. Mm. But it's actually much more deeper than that. And that's why I thought perhaps it's worth looking at or studying or even undertaking research on, on the contestation over graves. Mm. I like a, a certain point that you make in, 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 your, in your study here. And you say, even in the public discourse, there's an entire sort of uh, uh, discourse or even the use conceptually of this idea of dispossession. Uh, and sometimes we, we tend to narrow and limit that to material dispossession, dispossession of land, dispossession of economic means of survival. Um, and you are saying that that is too limited. It is very limited. I mean, there is quite a wide range of literature, if you look within academia, that has been written about land dispossession in South Africa. Mm. And what happens is that they write about dispossession as taking place in a particular period that is, that is um, colonial um, South Africa or Africa, but also apartheid South Africa. But there is little consideration about how dispossession continues to take place in post-apartheid South mm. Africa. And again, the concept itself or the framework is very limited in that dispossession is thought only in relation to land. Mm. Mm. 
there hasn't been consideration about how we can extend the concept or the framework and what exactly is it that communities lose um, uh, when we speak about this sure, position. Sure, sure. And, and uh, some of the things that you touch on here is this idea of spiritual security, identity, heritage and belonging. And I want us to pick out two. One is the spiritual security dimension and the other is belonging. And you suggest that, you know, the moment uh, after whatever heritage evaluation studies are undertaken and they say we're going to take the graves now and we're going to take it closer to maybe where we think some of your descendants are. Um, and yet at the end of the day, what that in effect does is that it severes the claim historically that many of those people have to that uh, piece of land. Very spot on. So this is the problem in South Africa, but also perhaps Africa in general. Mm. When we think about uh, a house or land, we think about a material thing. Sure. And so for mining corporations, as well as the state in South Africa, they think these are replaceable. Mm. And of course here they're applying a market-based rationale, sure. which is that a house can be bought and sold. Land can be bought and sold. As a result, these can be replaced. So they can be, mo they can be moved from one place to another. So if it's a grave, it's also a material position. We can move it and put it elsewhere because a house, graves, fields stand in the way of profit making. Mm. And that's how mining corporations see these things. And the state but sees it maybe as a potential source of tax revenue. Absolutely. Right? Mm. But the argument that I make is that there's an experience attached to the house, to the grave, to the fields. And so loss here is, is sometimes intangible. Mm. So you cannot see it. You cannot quantify it. But it takes place in that communities, for instance, spoke about losing their ancestral graves. And mm. what are these in the current political sure, dispensation? Sure. These are evidence. They illustrate or they proof that uh, families have lived on the land mm. for a particular mm. uh, period of time and so they the graves qualify sure. families existence and of course they qualify whatever future claims they might have uh, 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 on the back of being dispossessed of that land and uh, Danielle I want us to pause there for a second and uh, we'll continue our conversation after this brief break I want to take a spot break but also invite some of our listeners uh, to weigh in on our conversation give us a ring here on 089-110-3377 you might also have uh, experienced something similar here uh, where your family was either moved from where you lived prior to that and uh, some of the graves were moved or, or you had to leave some of those graves behind talk to us about uh, uh, what that experience meant for your own uh, family and it might not necessarily be in uh, any of the mining communities but I can assure you that uh, many of our own families come uh, from uh, farming communities where they were either evicted uh, you know by uh, the landowner there and uh, forced to uh, flee uh, in a hurry and uh, leaving behind many of not only their graves but uh, the sentiment and the experience uh, attached to many of those monuments and uh, sentimental uh, attachments we continue uh, with our conversation with uh, Dineos Kosan associate researcher at Wits University after this break. 17 minutes it is uh, before 9 p.m. and uh, we are under the microscope uh, this evening here on uh, Metro FM Talk and we're taking a look at uh, the challenges of dispossession and uh, understanding it differently and uh, using the uh, context of uh, the uh, coal mining areas uh, in uh, the area of Ochis in Emalasheni and uh, I'm talking to Dineos Kosana whose PhD work uh, traced the relocation of 120 families between 2012 and 2016 
from uh, the Goedgewonden farm, the Tuyafontein farm and other farms in the area of Ochis. Now, Dineo, talk to us here about, uh, I mean, you touched on policy earlier on. I am quite interested in how, you know, uh, the policy framework we have in the country is able to respond to this challenge of spiritual security, this uh, whole debate around claims to belonging, claims to land, claims to, you know, the spiritual sentiments that come with owning that land and uh, the experiences associated with that land. Because on the one hand, there's mining legislation, but then on the other one would think that uh, we've got legislation that ensures the preservation of artifacts and uh, 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 anything that's related to our own heritage. Yes, absolutely. You do have uh, legislation that is put in place to safeguard um, heritage. And in particular, graves in South Africa are protected under the National Heritage Act. And there are provisions within the legislation. And just to give you an example, you've got graves which, if they're 60 years old, therefore they are... so you find that these are actually governed provisionally. And if you've got graves that are 100 years old, these are considered um, archaeological. Mm. And so these are administered by, a different uh, by, by SARA, which is the South African Heritage Agency. Now, the problem here is that essentially graves are not, e- are not treated equally. Mm. So if you've got a grave that is three months old, or a year old. It's not treated the same way Mm. as a grave that is six years old or or 100 years years old old is treated. And also, if the grave is considered a war grave, or it's it's a grave of a traditional leader or Mm. of a a significant person or a politician, it's treated differently from commoners' graves. Mm. And you also see that, unfortunately, with how people's ancestral graves are relocated. So even there's inequality even in death, clearly. Absolutely, there is inequality within, dra- within death, and that is a problem. That is a very fundamental problem. And so what you find, for instance, is, is that there's also provisions around who can relocate the grave. So if the grave is younger, then it means it can simply be relocated by an undertaker. But if a grave is older, it's 60 years old or it's 100 years old, then you need an archaeologist. Mm. Now, mining companies will often try and avoid the use of archaeologists and try and use a local undertaker. Mm. Now, the problem is that local undertakers are not always trained or equipped to actually relocate people's ancestral graves. And that's where the problem lies. But also, you're absolutely right when you refer to the mineral law in South Africa. Essentially, you've got two legislations that are in, are in contestation. Mm. You've got one trying to protect heritage. Then you've got another which lists land as well as minerals for mining purposes mm. to multinational corporations. And already there, you can see that there is a clash within the law. Sure. And as you as you know as you would know when you put heritage versus generating mm. profit with a south africa which is market driven sure you will have the MPRDA or the mineral law overriding the mm. protection of heritage. And you know, to know, it's not only, I mean, in some of these multinationals, because I remember uh, a few years ago when uh, Medupi and Kusile were still in the early stages of building. I remember 
um, a large number of graves that had to be relocated in that area, which is not so far from uh, Ochis uh, and is linked, I guess, because of uh, uh, the role of coal in our own generation of energy here in this country. So even in instances where the government has its own interests, uh, those uh, in many cases supersede the sentimental and spiritual uh, interests of many of the communities here. Yes, there is a lack of understanding of what a grave is or what it means mm. to African people. And, I mean, just to be clear, a grave is a sacred space which connects the living to the dead. Mm. And and there's also lack of understanding of what is the connection that African people have to the grave and therefore the land. What people don't understand is that a grave is a marker. Mm. And usually, or historically, where the grave would lie, that will be where your umbilical cord was buried. Sure. So your umbilical cord will be buried in a particular space to mark where you will be returned when you die. Mm. And mm. so there was an establishment of a connection at birth with the place. Mm. And mining companies do not understand this. And so does our state, unfortunately. So claims to land are really about claims to to restoration, mm. to restitution. Claims to land are about returning or restoring dignity. And that's what people don't understand. There's always debates about what do you what do you need the land for? Mm. What will what you, you do, do about it? Yeah, what exactly. You do with it? You're absolutely right. And I all, I often say the problem is that we often ask the wrong the wrong question, which is what does land mean to you? And I say if you go to a space like Somkele, mm. where you see in Lugagoko, where you see on or, or try and understand was what kind of practices, mm. yes are done in Lingagogo. You know mm. these houses with a, which are concrete with a thatched roof? Sure, sure. When a child is born, some families take that child inside the house and go and ask for a name mm. there. Esbayeni, when you bring, when you get married, you will go Esbayeni. At other points, you might ukrite nyong and say, we're bringing umama, ubuya, gupi, igama, isbongo, and so on. All these special arrangements show you or are mapped out to illustrate the significance mm. of land. Mm. So if you ask a direct question, it's difficult to understand what is the meaning of sure, land and why sure, is it important. Sure. But if you ask what happened, what happens in Spain, what happens in Lingagogo, what happens in another space, mm. then you begin to understand why land is significant and mm. why people are calling for it. It's not really about the material sure. thing itself. It's about the connection that people make to the material mm. thing and their daily experience. Sure. Do you know, I want us to pause there because I think you're raising very, very critical issues here, uh, which challenge us as a society to think beyond the market lens when we have this debate around land. Uh, it's not just about, you know, Injebo, uh, that is uh, a possible or, or within the potential of that land, but it's also about sort of a reclamation of our psychological and spiritual uh, uh, roots and genesis as African people. And I was saying earlier on when we started the show here that uh, sometimes we have to think about land outside of the market and think about it as, you know, the, the medium that facilitates some conversation or interaction between the dead, the living and the yet to be born. Um, and uh, I want us to pause there now and uh, take a quick spot break. And when we come back, 
Uh, we'll continue with this conversation. I also want us to take a look uh, here at, uh, more importantly, how we begin to think differently about these issues and how do we mount an effective policy response um, uh, to uh, be able, I guess, to, to give meaning uh, to our people because dignity is not just only putting a roof over people's heads or ensuring that their children are fed and clothed, but it's also about uh, really restoring the spiritual and psychological realm as well. You tuned into Metro FM Talk. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, when we come back, we're also going to take a look at some of the tweets that are coming through. Do send them through on at Metro FM Essay. Use the hashtag Metro FM Talk. Seven minutes it is before 8 p.m. And uh, we're under the microscope. And uh, indeed, as we often do, you know, a real recognize a real here on the Metro FM Talk. And uh, we're taking a look at uh, this idea of dispossession and uh, widening our aperture uh, significantly here to uh, think about uh, all of uh, the makings of a human being. Uh, you know, we're not only material beings, but in many ways we're also spiritual beings that are having a physical experience. And uh, I'm joined uh, to have this conversation by uh, Dineos Kosana, and uh, we're talking about uh, this uh, whole issue of uh, uh, spiritual security, belonging, and uh, more importantly, how we reconcile uh, the two interests that are at play here, one being in the Minerals Act, the other being uh, in our Heritage Act. Talk to me briefly about, uh, you know, some of the experiences of many of the people, uh, uh, you know, 120 families you suggest here, uh, and uh, what happened when many of these, you know, uh, graves were exhumed, uh, you know, what is the dis- what dissatisfied the families about how that process uh, took place? Well, some of the families were former labor tenants mm. and some uh, were migrant laborers. Sure. And in Ochis, it's white agricultural farmland. So that means that the communities live under a white farm owner. And when the mining companies come in, they negotiate with the farm owner who then signs documentation and authorizes mining without consulting sometimes with the people who live on that land. Mm. And you find that these people have been living there for years and they've buried on the farms. So now with the 120 families, they, some of them lived, for instance, in a farm called Grot uh, Gefonden. Now, this farm is where currently Glenco uh, is is operating. And Glenco wanted to uh, open an open-cast mining in mm. the area. And so the families were relocated and moved to Emagausi, which is Paula. That is a township in Ochis. Mm. Now, there is a disturbance there in that you're moving a community that is agricultural-based to a township. And... In, in on farmland, communities often don't have to pay rates. Exactly. They don't have to pay water, you know, uh, and so on. Now, you put them in a monetary, um, uh, monetarized system, rather, in, in a township, ba- you know, in a township um, economy, mm. where if you do not have money, you will sleep hungry. Mm. Whereas in an agricultural-based farmland, even if you don't have money, you will at least be able to access, you know, your vegetables and so on. And your livestock and, and your all livestock that. Yeah, and so yeah, on. Yeah. And so communities spoke about the manner in which they were relocated, mm. which is akin to what was happening, for instance, during forced removals, where you see your neighbors pack their belongings and you start packing too, or you mm. see trucks mm. packing, mm. I mean, truck trucks outside yeah. your gate and you also start packing as well because you're worried what's going to happen to you. Because you know you're next. Yes, and mm. then your belongings are loaded into the truck and you leave your livestock, right? And 
some of these people, for instance, speak about how the livestock was worth to them. And mm. you can pass it from, you know, one generation to another. Now you are moved to a township and where you only rely on pension and where you have to pay water and electricity, mm. where the space is very little so you cannot farm. And this is a major problem. And they also spoke about their graves as well. Uh, over a thousand graves were relocated in Tuefontaine, in, in the Tuefontaine farm only, and there's many more. And communities spoke about seeing their ancestral remains and not being prepared psychologically about what is it that they'll find during the exhumations. Some of the remains were placed in black plastic bags. Mm. And some of the remains were reburied in small caskets. And communities were given at least 1,005, which is very little. What do you do with 1,005 when you were buried or your, I mean, when your grandfather, or your mother was buried in Ngomo, which costs around 9,000 and more? Mm. And people say, when you return them, uh, I mean, when you, you, mm. which means that and a goat. You have to speak to the spirit, you have to inform family members, and you have to have a little ceremony. Sure. Now, all of this can happen when you're given a thousand five. And of course, the market-based system, you know, can't even begin to comprehend that. Exactly. You know, it doesn't even, you know, make sense in that paradigm yeah. to even understand that, you know, th- those relocation costs are not necessarily about the financial cost of getting, you know, imbuzi or nengomo. Yes. But it, it's actually about also the spiritual cost of doing so. Exactly. Because if that is done, we know for us black people, if you applied for for a job mm. and you went to an interview 10 times mm. and you don't get the job, eventually people go to a grave by a kuluma, by mm. a ela. And then back to a when they work. Exactly. Yes. If you've been trying for a baby mm. for more than three years you go to the grave mm. right now that means that is spiritual security a grave provides that your connection to ancestors provides that spiritual security now the mining companies do not understand mm. this hmm. and you know i mean for me last one on my end unfortunately we have run out of time i think your your phd work here and your continuing work uh, post your doctoral uh, studies here um, also have a lot of policy relevance, um, and I want to maybe draw our discussion as we as we wrap towards that. Uh, what are some of the things that you are seeing here that you're suggesting, that you're recommending uh, to us as a country about how we co-articulate? Uh, on the one hand, the need to use our resources to develop the communities and the nation we come from, and then on the other, to really, I guess, uh, as part of the restoration of our country's dignity and what, uh, you know, Memampela Rampela called RDP of the soul, uh, for us to be able to engage some of these issues. How, how do we balance and reconcile them? Well, we need to first rethink uh, our economic system mm. because we thought that post-transformation that we've got, for instance, mineral law that now is vested in the hands of the state. Mm. And we thought that is a form of nationalization whereby the minerals are held in custody by the state for the people of South Africa. Mm. Now, on paper, this looks like uh, nationalization. Now, in practice, what you have is a market-driven mineral Mm. law Mm. 
So we are actually operating within a capitalist framework or a capitalist economic system. Mm. And we know that that system is dire. Mm. Right. That system doesn't understand um, uh, what humanity is. Sure. So the what 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 I'm actually trying to say is that in in policy reformation mm. we have to reconsider whether this is a system actually that we yeah. or the framework we want to continue working in which sure. is the market driven framework okay. because that is problematic Dineo we'll have to leave it this is one real pleasure Dr. Dineo Eskosana uh, joining us here for our uh, feature under the microscope this evening and really giving us a lot of food for thought in terms of how we understand and have engaged this uh, notion of uh, dispossession but also if I leave with any other thought it's uh, this uh, sense that you know, if we think state capture started with the guys from uh, Saxon world, it's quite clear here that uh, our entire state has been built really on the prioritization uh, in this particular case of uh, the mining sector, its own interests. And uh, if uh, you want to argue with me, uh, ask anybody who's ever found any mineral under their home and what uh, indeed then happened to them. We're going to leave it there. The man with the music's already here. St. Clair is going to be with you from 9 to midnight with all of those soulful sounds. You have yourself a great evening. Take strength, my Africa. Leave economy.